Everybody who's taken a shower has had an idea. Your idea is worth the same as everybody else's in the shower, right? Your idea is worth zero. I love actually spending a lot of time imagining what the world would look like, and I'm an incredibly optimistic person. So in the world, the future is always very efficient and very kind, and everything works really well together. We just had a vision, but we hadn't matured yet to understand that taking an insight and turning it into a business was, was kind of the hard bit. Welcome to Zero to IPO, a podcast that dives deep into the many steps it takes to turn a great idea into a thriving company. I'm Frederick Karras, co-founder of Okta. And I'm Joshua Davis, the co-founder of Epic Magazine and a contributing editor at Wired. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the aha moment, that magical moment for an entrepreneur when you realize you have a brilliant original idea that just might work. But what comes next? How do you convince other people that your idea is great? How do you get investors to listen? And Josh, how do you make your brilliant original idea a reality? In our last episode, we heard from Mark Andreessen about what the future might look like. And now in this episode, we're gonna take the next step and look at exactly what it takes to come up with that idea. And sometimes, as you will hear, the idea is the easy part. Actually, the idea is always the easy part. Well, it's not. <laughs> But then it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 the easy part once you've decided on it, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like you're the on hard this, part. The hard part's always what comes next. I think for the last seven years, the CFO at Okta, my friend Bill Losh, has said to me, "This, Frederick, is the most important year." <laughs> Every year he said that. <laughs> Finally, two years ago, he said, "No, no, no. Now I'm really serious. This is going to be the most important year." <laughs> so I totally agree. <laughs> always about what's next. <laughs> it's always about what's going to come next. That's going to be the hardest one. In today's episode, we're going to hear from a number of entrepreneurs who've had the opportunities in front of them and they've made the right decision, the right idea, the right business to go pursue successfully. We're going to talk to Alex Asaley from Jawbone. We've also got Fred Luddy, the founder of ServiceNow, Parker Harris of Salesforce, and Melanie Perkins from Canva. Last episode, we heard from Mark Andreessen about how an entrepreneur needs to go deep on one idea, iterate until they get it right, and then hope the timing works out. We're going to start this episode with Alex Asaley from Jawbone, makers of the famous headset. We'll be hearing from Alex throughout this season about Jawbone's ups and downs and eventual bankruptcy. But today, we're going to start at the beginning of the story and hear about their false starts and pivots as they worked out the idea. The difficulty when you're quite a young entrepreneur, especially in that period, in the kind of early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, is there wasn't great feedback loops for whether you had a good idea or not. So in the early days, it was more like we just had a vision. Like, oh, you know, mobile is going to be huge. Uh, people are going to talk to each other. Therefore, they want to have clear lines of communication. And if you're going to be mobile, you're going to have to get rid of noise. And therefore, you have to have good noise suppression. And you're going to have to have good headsets and all the rest of it. So that was... That was, in a sense, the insight. But we hadn't matured yet to understand that taking an insight and turning it into a business was um, was kind of the hard bit. Did you have any business background? No. No. I, no. no. I, <laughs> you didn't know what you were doing. So but be, you felt you had some confidence uh, in your insight, I suppose. And you're like, I'll figure out the rest. Yeah. So the idea for Jawbone actually came right before the BMW thing. It came at right at the end of, of undergrad. It was, it was basically my undergrad 
design thesis. Right. And I'm not entirely sure that the idea I came up with was particularly good. <laughs> what was except, that particular idea? Well, the idea that I presented was basically a an interface involving something that looks a lot like the Apple Watch connected to a headset where you would control your digital life through this watch and a, and a headset. I was I was enthralled by the mobile revolution, I think. Um, the idea of having you know, wearable technology was was exciting to me, at least at that time. And and and, and actually, it's pretty funny because I'm sure we I can find people who were in the presentation in 1997 who heard me pitch the idea, and there was like complete there was like six judges, and I presented this multimodal like wearable user interface, and there was actually like complete silence. And then the, some woman <laughs> felt bad for me, and she was like, um, "Is there any part of this that you think is actually possible?" In the next 10, 15 years. <laughs> and I'm like, um, I haven't thought about that yet. Um, I got a, I think I got a B minus or a C, I think, on that. It was my worst, it was my worst grade in all my engineering classes I'd done at Stanford. Was so you my decided final thesis. You took that the worst grade you had gotten in your entire college career and you decided to turn that into a I think I did, yeah. I think I got multi-million worse dollar business. In my religious studies, I think I did worse. Than that. <laughs> um, I was sort of unabashed by the whole thing in the sense that I was just like, I knew I wanted to set up a company, I knew I wanted to do my own thing. Wasn't sure how to do it, but by hook or by crook, we'd figure it out. But there's this interesting uh process for you, you have this original idea. You think you're a genius, right? You've got this big idea. And then there's this period of time when that original idea morphs. Uh, and, and that sounds like the process you went through. Yes. And this is where we start to have traction. And the traction started when a great professor at Stanford called Pierre Curie-Yacoub, not the guy, go, go B minus. Um, he said, you may want to go and visit these guys at Lawrence Livermore Labs. I'll make a connection. So I trundled off with Hussein, my co-founder, and we went to see Lawrence Livermore Labs and we got presented this technology, which was basically a small radar device, which could pick up voice signals without picking up the background noise, basically. So we we're like, ah. So by that time, I think we'd already decided we, we had to abandon the watch and we had to focus on the headset. Were you at all sad about abandoning this genius idea? Perhaps one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the 15, 20 years I've been doing this stuff is how to help both myself and other people I'm working with think realistically about stuff. Having lived for periods of time very unrealistically, I think that the, that, that period was kind of a big lesson in, in like saying, okay, great vision. We share the same view of the future, but what is my role? What piece am I going to put in the puzzle? Because I can't do the whole puzzle. And in a way, what I was basically doing with my vision was like, here's the whole puzzle. And so at the beginning, you were like, oh, I've got this watch idea. And people would be like, yeah, that doesn't, that sounds like maybe too grand a vision. <laughs> yeah, I think people love the vision. Yeah. But loving a vision uh, doesn't mean that they want to invest in a, in a business. Ultimately, and you weren't getting, <laughs> you weren't getting any money. We weren't getting any money. But what happened was we did a deal with Lawrence Livermore Labs for this technology that I mentioned, where we said, look, we want to license this technology exclusively. We can't pay you all the money now, but we're going to raise money off the back of the license. And, and, they, they, went, yes. and they went for it. The great irony, though, the great irony of, of, of Jawbone was that in the end, that technology was its only real, <laughs> its only real utility for us 
was in helping us close the first round of funding. We ended up- You dropped it. You dropped the technology. We completely dropped it. It We dropped the micro radar thing. Uh, That never ended up being part of the product, but it got you that initial interest. Yeah. It was basically like- It was legitimacy. It was legitimacy. Yeah. we've We've got this technology developed by a federal laboratory. That's exactly right. And that sounds cool. It sounds very cool. It's a good story. It's, yeah, it worked. So we raised a million bucks on the back of that. So, so that was, you know, you had this grand vision of wearables, a watch, a headset, this kind of ecosystem of, uh, of communication. And that all went away. That genius idea got whittled down to one thing. It got whittled down to a headset, which then got whittled down to a technology that went in the headset, which took out background noise. I think it's interesting in in these early days of coming up with the idea to realize that you are at the beginning of what is likely a minimum five-year journey. I think one big thing that Alex's story reinforces is that companies, especially enterprise tech companies, Josh, are almost never overnight successes. Why? It takes time. You got to fine-tune the model. You got to carve out the niche. And even after that, you're still hoping you got the timing right. You're hoping there's a market there and that people are ready for your crazy idea. Was Facebook an overnight success? No. No, because Microsoft? No. All the ones that, well, well, those are two different kind of companies. First of all, Microsoft's enterprise software company took many, many years. Facebook, you need the viral social effect. It takes a while to kick off. So, I mean, all, those, all the big ones, take, they take, it takes a while to get going. I mean, you do see these kind of rapid uptakes in customers. Yeah. But that's not necessarily proof that the business is going to work. That's right. And you always do see that. If you're going to see that at all, you're going to see it on the consumer side, not on the enterprise side. Because Amex is not going to be an early adopter to all these new technologies. They're going to want to see that small and medium businesses have gotten it right. They're going to want to see there's social proof in that. Customer marketing is a huge thing. It takes a while. Also means, by the way, much harder to kill those companies. Once enterprise software companies kind of get rolling, it's hard to take them down. Our next guest, Melanie Perkins from Canva, tackled the problem of the early idea from a different angle. She focused at the beginning on creating a vast vision for the future of publishing, but then implementing a very doable first step. Melanie, um, you started uh, Canva. It had a slightly different name. There's actually another company that you started before Canva. A different name, kind of a precursor to Canva. How, how did that how, how did that all happen? And then how did you end up pivoting? And, and just talk us a little bit through some of those things so that we can get into the flow. So when I was at university, I was teaching design programmers part-time and I saw students really struggling learning the basics. It would take a whole semester just to learn where the buttons were that learn how to design anything that looked good. And so I thought that in the future, design would be online and collaborative and way simpler than it was. Um, but I was 19 at the time and I had no business experience or like any relevant experience. And so rather than trying to take on the entire world of design, took on school yearbooks in Australia um, and started that company and had to become profitable really quickly because we had no outside funding. And then um, looked around after a few years, that was growing really well and thought that surely this has been done before in other markets because people kept on asking to use that product for all sorts of other things um, and realized it still hadn't been done. And so then embarked on the, the journey of Canva and spent some years raising funds, then another full year of development. And then in 2013, in August, we launched Canva to the world, which was pretty incredibly exciting. 
right from the early days, we had plans to take on the entire world <laughs> um, and, and replace the future of publishing or become the future of publishing. But started with yearbooks because that seemed like a really logical um, first place because people had such a huge need and they were also already paying for the actual yearbooks to be printed. Yearbooks was just the beginning. How far out? You said you, yeah. your, your plan was to, to take over the future of publishing. Like, did you have a five-year plan? Did you have a 10-year plan? Like... I love actually spending a lot of time imagining what the world would look like. And I'm an incredibly optimistic person. So in the world, the future is always very efficient and very kind and very, everything works really well together. Um, and so I guess with the first few years of Fusion, um, I spent a lot of time realizing just like, firstly with the design, when I was teaching design programs, it was seeing how difficult it was. And then over those first few years of Fusion, really realizing just how complicated all of the different things were. And we also had a design service with our with Fusion Books. So we'd have a design service and then we also had the online system. And we could see the difference between those two things, like what our professional designers were doing versus what our um, online system were doing. So over the years, we just kept on iterating and improving that. Um, but then um, when it came to going to San Francisco for the first time, that was when I had to take all of these concepts and theories and put them into one pitch deck um, and paint the future of publishing. So that was back in 2011 where I created that first pitch deck. We came runner up in um, a competition called WA Inventor of the Year. <laughs> and we went to a conference um, in Perth and and there was a speaker there, um, Bill Tai. And when he was speaking, I hadn't, even though we'd had a startup for a few years, I'd never heard of anything about startups or Silicon Valley or really very much to do with, with that at all. Um, and then after the conference, I had a five minute chat with him and he said, if I went to San Francisco, he'd be happy to meet with me. Um, and so I was like, oh, I'm going to be in San Francisco. Like, I'm just totally cool. Like just going to be in the area. Um, on, I sent him some dates. Um, little did he know that I was only going to do that trip if he actually said yes and fortunately he responded um, and, and said he'd meet and so I was like okay oh my god this is the biggest thing ever um, started putting together together my pitch deck printing it out on my on my printing press um, and then going to San Francisco my brother was living there and studying um, at the time and so I, I very fortunately had had a nice living room to crash on for my three month stay there um, <laughs> which is quite funny and what did you know about Bill Tye at that point? Did you know, like, when you saw him at the conference, did you know all about him? Um, he was just a Silicon Valley god in my head, really. I really didn't know anything about Silicon Valley. I didn't know how it worked. I had no idea about venture capital. When he said, um, you know, sometime after, he would be happy to fund, um, fund me if I could find the tech team. I had no idea that that didn't mean that he was going to fund the entire company forever. That was kind of how I thought it worked at that point in time. I've since done, obviously, a lot more reading and learning on, on the topic. But at that point in time, he was just like representative of this whole world that I knew nothing about. So the first pitch deck was quite bare bones. And then the second pitch deck, I said to Bill for some bizarre reason that I was going to send it through to him by Friday. And so that meant that I ended up, I think I was working for like 36 hours or something straight. I kind of lost my eyesight for a little while, which I don't recommend to anyone. And I was kind of concerned whether or not it would come back, but it did. Um, and, but he had his pitch deck by the Friday. And this pitch deck. Wait, wait, you lost your eyesight while writing this pitch deck? 
Uh, so this is not recommended to try at home, but I, I was working way too much. Um, I was like going to every single conference I possibly could, trying to pitch people to join my team. I'd for some reason had set a deadline that I was going to send it through um, to Bill by Friday, and I just stayed up continuously until it was done to send it through by Friday, um, which I, I don't necessarily recommend because like it was kind of scary. I looked in the mirror and everything was blurry, and I. Uh, finish the pitch deck and then I wake up and had good eyesight again. So I was kind of happy about Too that. much staring into the future. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but so this is the pitch deck that you're talking about that has this vision of the future. And, and how did you put a, a date on it? Did you say, okay, in five years or, or in 12 months, this is where we will be. In five years, this is where we will be. In 10 years. Uh, so that's been the one part of my pitch deck that has been consistently completely off. I've always thought things would happen in about 12 months. So my first pitch deck, I thought that I'd have designed and built the entire future of, the, of publishing in like the first 12 months. But that has been uh, the only thing that's been consistently off is I always overestimate how much I can achieve in you one, and Elon one Musk. year. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's, a maybe, uh, there's a trait there in entrepreneurs. Uh, you can see the future. You just can't quite predict how, or maybe you uh, you you think that it should happen more quickly than 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 it does because you're an optimist. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And you just kind of imagine everything being able to happen and instantly, and then it. But I guess if it could all have happened in a year, it'd kind of be boring. Right. So now it's seven years on, and you say you've only gotten mm. through just the barest beginning of it. Uh, and you, you have you say you also said you haven't revised it. You haven't touched it at all. Like the original business plan, you're still operating off of that original business plan. Yeah, like of course we've like got more detail as, on it um, as we've gone, but like the broad strokes have been there right from the the ground, which I feel really grateful for. I can't imagine having a company that's like pivoting all the time and changing. Like our investors have invested in that vision. Our team members have joined that vision. And I think that having that consistency has been really helpful because there's so many other things to nut out as you're growing a company. I think having that, that one part being consistent has been incredibly helpful. So, all right, so we know it's all about having a great idea. You gotta commit to a degree that probably seems insane to everyone around you and hoping against all reasonable hope that the timing is right. It's not just about the timing in the broader market, but maybe it's also about the timing of the idea in your life. Like, where are you at? What stage of life are you at? Are you in your 20s? Are you in your 30s? Are you in your 40s? Could it be later? In fact, our next guest, Fred Luddy, he started ServiceNow much later in life. Let's hear Fred talk about the genesis of ServiceNow, which is now a multi-billion dollar enterprise IT company. So I was unemployed. And I'm also a little bit anomalous in that I was unemployed and 49 years old. And uh, I thought, well, I've worked for enough people. Um, I ought to see if I'm as smart as I think I am. Or you, I was, you didn't want to get a job? I, the whole notion of getting another job was just not, not, not appealing. Because there was another, I think, factor to what had happened and with the previous thing, which is you had had a sizable, let's call it a fortune, and it went away. Okay, so, yeah, I, I worked for a company called Peregrine Systems. I, we built it from zero in revenue to six, seven hundred million dollars in revenue. We were a publicly traded company with a couple billion dollar market cap at the at the turn of the century and um the big challenge that the company had was 
you know, they were financial improprieties. It was all about revenue recognition. There were revenue RevRec problems. So they had recognized revenue prematurely. And that's a very, that's a deep subject. But in, in any case, once that, uh, once those terms, the fraud term gets associated with a publicly traded company, things go downhill pretty quickly. Um, and so the corporation went from having a, you know, market cap of two billion down to zero. And like it went bankrupt. Zero. zero. Yes. Yeah. Zero. And you had some amount of equity in that my, company. My equity that I was holding on to is worth about thirty-five million dollars at the time, and I was feeling quite, you know, fat and happy. And then it went to. It also went to zero. You know, some listeners might think, okay, you gotta like cover your, you know, pay your bills. You gotta cover your, you know, you get a job. Yes. You know, get some income quickly. Yeah. So um, I had taken a little bit of money from that. And I also had a, a, you know, very, very lucrative pay package package there. And maybe a lot of people also will identify with this because the lucrative pay package was actually the worst thing that happened to me in that I was being paid at that time close to $800,000 a year, which I thought was, I come from Indiana, right? Nobody makes that kind of money in Indiana. I mean, you have to pay, play for the Pacers or the Colts if you're going to make that kind of money. I hated my job. I hated it every, every minute of the day. I hated it. You know, I would, I'd rather go home and clean my bathroom than go into, go into the office. But I was getting paid $800,000 a year. So What you know, else are you going to do? I, good Midwest Catholic upbringing guy. You're going to get the $800,000. So I put, you had to put some of that money away, right? So I had enough money to probably last about 36 months before I was, was out on the street. But in any case... You know, I find myself out of, out of work, and honestly, I'm, I've been a, a, a programmer since I was 16, and every day I wake up and hope to get time to code. Same true today as it was in, in 1972. And so my, my business objective was, I'm going to write some code that somebody will pay for, and then I can write some more code. You see this? here? That was the only, right. that was <laughs> the the only bit, business objective. My <laughs> business plan was... Create us a virtuous cycle of coding. That's correct. So the phases were first exploring all the new technologies. So these are things, these are languages I had not yet learned. Um, and figuring out, okay, what can I become comfortable with? And picking a set of those. And then starting to simultaneously think, well, what do I know? And what do these languages, what are these technologies, what, are, what can they possible problem can they solve? So you get that symbiosis, symbiosis going. And um, started writing this platform, for lack of a better term. I demonstrated it. It was on a uh, thumb drive. I used to call it, it's called, you know, service now on a stick. Right? <laughs> Put it in somebody's laptop. and you had a na- So you had a name for it. You came up with a name. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had a horrible name. What was the horrible name? It was called Glide. Glide means to move effortlessly. And so Glide.com, though, was taken. So I chose GlideSoft because Microsoft GlideSoft. And my girlfriend looked at me and said, Glidesoft, I can't think of one positive thing that comes into my mind <laughs> when you say Glidesoft. <laughs> I think that's going to be an issue. So for our listeners, you, you recommend that you run the name of your company by your significant other right off the bat. I think that's a brilliant idea. I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea. And then when you said service now to her? 
she liked that idea. <laughs> I mean, who does, who wouldn't want service now? I can't imagine, you know. No, I'll have it later, please. No, I don't care for service. So, you know, I'd just as soon do it myself. Um, but in any case, when when at first it was this glide platform, right, and there was a couple of us trying to figure out what, what are the boundaries of this? What are the problems we're trying to solve? How far do we want to take this? You know, how much... Uh, leeway do we want to give every customer how much technology do we want to expose to them so that they can participate in building out the applications and if they're going to participate at what level are they going to participate so first the first phase was really technological discovery followed by business problem discovery that the technology can actually uh, i think uh, you know it can actually provide some value to in a fairly obvious way but talk to us at each of these stages about what you knew and what you didn't know, you know? Like, uh-huh. in other words, did it, was it all mapped out and you okay. knew exactly, okay, A, B, C, D. So, so phase one is we have 36 months of money. <laughs> that's, phase, that's phase one. We need money before 36 months. So we had better prove to somebody that we're doing something of value. And that, what about, or raise money? So that was the somebody, right? Oh. It, it wasn't necessarily that we needed a customer at 36 months, but we knew that we needed something that we could demonstrate was going to provide value. And, you know, people all the time, well, I had this idea. Good. Everybody who's taken a shower has had an idea. Your idea is worth the same as everybody else's in the shower, right? Your idea is worth zero. And if you have an idea that's a little more articulated, you know, maybe you have a little proof of concept, that's worth one, right? If you have a demonstration of something which is about to come to market, that's worth a hundred. And if you have two customers, five customers, that's worth a hundred thousand. So we wanted to get to the point where we had 12 customers and then we were going to go look for money because we felt, you know, even if we can't articulate this extremely well to the people who are doing series A investments, we can say, talk to our 12 customers and let them tell you why they think this will be of value going forward. So a lot of times when people are uh, starting companies, they're thinking about market size. They start with, what's the big market that I can go after? And then they go into, what are the business problems that are out there that I can solve? And then they go into, what's the technology I should use to solve that? What I just heard you say was, we have some great technology ideas. Now we're going to go find out exactly how they fit into these business problems. Yeah, I... I (laughs) If I gave the impression that that's how it worked, that would be exactly wrong in my estimation. Because from 1972 until this time, 2003, I'd pretty much done the same job. I'd just done it in all sorts of different technologies. And I'd gone through four generations of, why well, we build this this way, this, but we're still solving the same business problem. So you were an expert at those business problems. Yes. And you just said, here's a much better way to solve these business problems. Yes, so here, here's, the next, here's the next phase. And we're, we were very lucky. We knew what problem we were going to solve, but we, we wanted to do it differently. We wanted to do everything differently than had been done before. And you'd also been part of these past generations of this same business problem-solving technology. So you knew all the pitfalls. Yes. You knew how it was slow, it was hard to use, it was expensive, it was cumbersome, it couldn't be upgraded. So you had like on your whiteboard, you had a checklist of 10 things. You're like, these are the biggest problems with the last generation. Let's start with these as design concepts. That, that's, that's very true. Uh, we did have a very different perspective. Number one, our user interface was the browser, 
Well, that was that that was blasphemy and heresy right there, right? Back in 03. Yes. Like a browser. Nobody's gonna use a browser as an interface. That's just Looney Tunes. Number two, we weren't gonna let them install the software. It was gonna be it was gonna be on the cloud. We had no idea what it was going to be called. What we knew is we were gonna stick it on a server. And that server was going to be our server, and we were going to maintain the server because we couldn't teach a thousand companies how to maintain our software. It just, and it just didn't make any sort of economic sense to us. Third of all, regarding the upgrade issue, we wanted the system to be upgradable at any moment in time, and um, that, that that it would it would roll forward in a in a way that that wouldn't wouldn't harm the the current user community. So that that was also a philosophy that we adopted early on. And in fact, in our first 12 to 25 customers, we used to have a, a release of the software every, every week. Oh, geez, that's horrible. You're changing version to version. I don't know. What version of Gmail did you use today, right? What version of Chrome did you use today? Do you know that you're using, you know, 70.3? Because I don't think you do. So if you build the software in a way that it works, nobody cares that you're going versioning. It's when it doesn't work or it changes behavior and does things that are unexpected. That's when you lose the trust of your customer and you can no longer uh, keep it on your upgrade path. So our upgrade path was it has to be simple, but um, it also has to work. So, Josh, I think Fred's story here demonstrates something quintessentially true about enterprise software companies. It shows the importance of experience, of knowing the marketplace, of having that deep knowledge of the customer, the problems, the needs, the solutions, the offerings. It's really about how you're going to help them solve those problems they're facing. There's a big difference between starting a business focused on the consumer market versus the enterprise market, a market targeted at big businesses. What is that? Yeah, it's funny. It's almost if you think about it, you want consumer companies to be started by young people. Why? Because I'm 40 years old. I don't even know what they're using anymore. People show me their phone. I'm like, no, I'm an email guy. Don't, don't try and have me use all these new applications. They don't make sense to me. I'm old. But when it comes to enterprise, you think about large companies, you think about what they're trying to do. They want someone who understands where they've been. They, they want, want old people. They want old people. <laughs> they want people who've under, who understand the market, who've seen the problems, who've been inside those companies, who understand what they're trying to do, the opportunities, the risks, and what they really need to do to solve some of these big business problems. Here's an example. If you take uh, customer relationship management, CRM software, where companies buy this software so they can see what their customers are doing, they can track their customers, they can sell them more things, they know when they're up for renewal. In a previous generation, it was done on-premises. You would buy the software, you would install it, it was sold to you by companies like Siebel and Oracle, and then along came Salesforce.com. The people from Salesforce actually worked at Oracle before, and they saw how it worked, and they said, there's got to be a new way, we're going to deliver it over the internet, and that was the innovation there. Freddie, since you mentioned Salesforce, let's get to our next guest, Parker Harris. For those of us who maybe need a refresher on Salesforce, it's the multi-billion dollar cloud-based customer relations management company uh, that now dominates the San Francisco skyline. They've got the tallest building west of the Mississippi. I think, did you, did you know I think it's the second tallest because some guy what? in LA put an antenna up. Well, the antennas don't count when you the, ca- No, the no, antenna no, does they count. cannot count. It does count. You can look it up. It totally counts, dude. And Mark's super pissed about it, and San Francisco will not let him put an antenna up. Check it. Then you could just build in it. You could build build a building that was one story tall and put a 500-story antenna on it. I didn't make up the news. I'm reporting the news. 
I don't know about that. But let's uh, let's let's keep going here. We can we can take that offline. Okay, so uh, f- fine. Parker has the second tallest building west of the Mississippi. But what's interesting about our conversation with him was not about how they built this giant building and all the multi-billion dollar success that they have had, but in fact about the very start of the company and the fact that it wasn't necessarily the idea but what was more important was the team that got assembled around that idea. Let's hear from Parker as he describes meeting Mark Benioff for the first time and how some of his first impressions were not that great. You had a consulting company, Left Coast. Left Coast Software, yeah. What was interesting to me about the story as I read it was that it looked like somebody wanted to acquire Left Coast at one point. Yeah, Mark Benioff. (laughs) (laughs) Before that. Sababi Yazdani and and Saba Software. Uh, Sababi wanted to hire us or acquire us. And uh, we said, no, we're not ready for that. And that was when he introduced me to Mark Benioff. And uh, Mark was an investor. He he invested maybe 5 million into Saba. You know, yeah, he didn't. He didn't take it personally that you didn't want to come work with him. No, he was a businessman. You know, and he was looking to uh, see if we would join him when we didn't want to. He got more talent from us for a longer period of time. But the nice thing is that he was open about um, helping us always, which didn't necessarily help him directly. Although later it did uh, because we gave him fifty thousand dollars of founder stock. So oh, that worked out well. That. I think that worked out okay for him. That was a uh, nice gesture. Yeah. Well, it was the right thing to do. Um, because he made that initial introduction to Mark. He made the introduction. Mark showed up, um, head of sales walks by. Bobby introduces uh, uh, Mark to the head of sales, introduces me, head of sales walks off. <laughs> Mark says, you got to fire that guy. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, this is an intense, <laughs> intense. And so we went uh, to Kincaid's, we had lunch. And that was just the two of you at this point? The three of us. Okay. And, uh, and Mark was um, betting Bobby on his next quarter. <laughs> so, and they wanted me to hold the money. It was like a you know, hundred bucks, whatever. And they're like, well, you hold was the money. Was public like, at the time? I, I, no. Okay. And, and I said, I don't know either of you. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, I'm not going to hold your money. Uh, and then in the parking lot leaving, Mark and I walked out uh, together and Mark pitched me on the idea. So he hadn't brought it up at lunch. He waited till you got out to the parking lot. Yeah. No, it, it, the lunch was, uh, you know, relationship lunch. It wasn't about the idea. And you had been concerned about uh, the culture and the tension. Mark is, you know, right off the bat saying, fire this guy and betting yeah. on quarters. How yeah. did you think about? That was the early days uh, of the internet. So we searched for Benioff on the internet and there wasn't much. Uh, there was some article about him at a cocktail party. That was it. Uh, <laughs> And uh, Mark uh, had us go meet with a bunch of his engineers from Oracle, including Jim Cavallari, who joined us, still with us. And uh, that was uh, what he told them was it was their opportunity to check us out. But I also did the reverse and used it to ask about Mark. And I said, you know, actually started by saying, is Mark an asshole? And and I I used uh, you know that term to kind of provoke a reaction as opposed to, is he a nice guy? You know, is he enjoyable to work with? I thought I'd kind of poke them a little bit. Um, 
What reaction did you get? And I got, you know, that he's great. It was a really good group of people. They, you know, had a lot of respect for Mark. Uh, you know, and then we had a series, kept having meetings with Mark to get to know him better. So just to be clear, you said it was so early in the internet days, you could barely Google Benioff and find anything besides an article about a cocktail party. We got one hit. But you are willing to say, yeah, this idea of changing the way people buy all enterprise software and renting it over the internet, that sounds like a great idea. And you're like, I have an idea. Yeah, this is a good idea. We should go, we should go build this software. People go well, we have to remember over I, the internet. I've been doing Salesforce automation for like six years. Yeah. And then early cloud yeah. as a consultant. Yeah. So it was not a big leap to take the three-page email that Mark had written, which was the business plan, and say, yeah, I could totally see doing that. Right. You know, and I, I saw, you know, ironically, I, before that, I'd taken a short sabbatical and went to Nepal, went trekking, and said I'd never do Salesforce automation again. <laughs> then you came back and you built it. And, and then later came back, changed my mind. <laughs> you know, it's funny, and this is the advice I give a lot of people. It's not the idea. It was the person. The idea was good and we had the background and it all fit, but it was Mark Benioff and, uh, and it was Dave Molinoff before that. So, you know, when I left Metropolis and we did Left Coast Software, I also was looking at, should I go be a developer at a stable company? And I thought, no, I'm gonna hook my fortunes with Dave Molinoff, uh, which was a good thing. So, you know, it's one of the most brilliant engineers I've ever met. And then the same thing with Mark. You know, you meet Mark and you just, I just knew something good is going to happen with this guy. It may not be this first thing. Uh, first thing's pretty cool. Looks like a good idea. Uh, but if that first thing doesn't happen, there'll probably be new doors that will open. Uh, and so it was less about the perfect idea and more about the people. Sounds like, Freddie, that first impressions can be deceiving. What was your first impression of Todd McKinnon, your co-founder at Okta? I knew of Todd by reputation, uh, and we had worked together a little bit over our time at Salesforce, uh, but never directly and never for long periods of time. So we kind of dated for a couple months, and then I remember- um, What does that look like, dating dating a business, potential business partner? We'd spend time together and going like go over- go out for coffee. We'd go out for coffee, we'd meet at, uh, we'd meet at coffee bars. You'd hold hands. Uh, we'd meet at coffee bars, <laughs> and uh, we'd go over some uh, prototypes that he'd drawn up uh, and some ideas about how the business would work and who the buyers would be and what these markets look like. Um, talk a little bit about some of the opportunity, where we'd start, how we'd focus, and then go from there. So those were some of the things we did. I remember sending him the first financial model for the company on Cinco de Mayo, May 5th. Um, and that was kind of the official date that I think we, we agreed that we would go into business together. He also provided a list of references, uh, executives at Salesforce uh, that he had worked with and who could talk a little bit about what it was like working with him. And, you know, fortunately, a, a good point of social proof in this case was I looked at that list and I said, well, that's great because you can call all those people and talk to them about me as well. So you found the right person, but you obviously also have to have the right idea. So, Freddie, we've now heard a bunch of different voices talk about their brilliant idea. And the truth is that in many cases, the initial idea wasn't the end idea. And sometimes the genius idea comes along and you don't necessarily even recognize it as such. For instance, when Parker Harris met Mark Benioff, Mark had this idea for this uh, you know, grand business. Parker was just like, who is this guy? 
Well, I think also that when you're getting started, it's a lot less grand and glorious than it sounds like now. You're just trying to get something going. You're trying to build some software. You're trying to find a customer. You're trying to find an office. You're trying to raise some money. I mean, these are hard times to get rolling, and it takes a lot of perseverance. If it's easy, everyone would be doing it. Special thanks to our guests today, Parker Harris, Alex Asaley, Fred Luddy, and Melanie Perkins for taking time out of their day to share their insights and wisdom with us. And to the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship for collaborating with Okta to bring this podcast to life. If you like what you've heard and want to know more, check out exclusive in-depth stories from each episode at fastcompany.com. And to hear the next step in taking a company from zero to IPO, make sure to subscribe and give us a good rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Joshua Davis. And I'm Frederick Karest. And we hope you'll tune in for our next episode, Garage Days. Garage Days. Thanks for listening. The, nobody should ever want or desire to be living in a garage. Yeah. <laughs>